Ecclesiastes. Here we go. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not yet or will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Jerusalem, or over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Chapter 12, another word you've heard before, tons of times already. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he has also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Brother Ben, let's get it done. Thanks, Brother Stephen. Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, with everyone so hype after Monday's victory, we thought we would body slam you back down to earth with uh, a nice little series in Ecclesiastes and meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, I'm not about to suggest that Monday night was meaningless. I don't want to get jumped in the parking lot after uh, tonight is over, but uh, we'll cover that next week. Well, as Stephen alluded, we're starting a new series tonight. Uh, between now and spring break, we're going to spend these eight weeks looking through this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes. And tonight, we're going to talk about this frustrated world and frustrating lives that we live in it um, from the passage that he read. There's three things that I want to let you know about now to look for. This is kind of a roadmap of where we're going to spend the next 30 minutes God uses Ecclesiastes to show us where we live. Now, I want you to pay attention to this first part um, because he's going to be wrestling with you because you have a different idea of where you live. I do too. So this first point is a wrestling match. God is not speaking to people with a blank slate. Oh, tell us, Lord, where do we live? We have very deep intuitions and ideas and feelings about what this life is like and what the world is like. And he's going to be correcting that and wrestling with us. So that's the first point. God uses this book to show you where you live. Second, he shows us where we live so that we'll know how to live. 
And last, he shows us how to live by showing us who to live for. So where we live, how we live, and who we live for. And these are going to build on each other. So this first one will be a little longer, and then we'll get short as we go. Let's pray. Jesus, your name doesn't appear in this book, all 12 chapters. There's no talk of a cross or a sacrifice or cleansing for sin or a resurrection. But you say in the Gospels, Search the scriptures thinking that you have life in them, but they testify of me. You say in Luke 24 that all the prophets and the scriptures, the writings, in a picture of you, our Redeemer. So we would pray that in the next eight weeks, you would show us you here. Show us where we live and how to live and that you are the one who made us to live for yourself, and in you we find life. We pray that we would find that even tonight. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, let's just get after it. I said the first um, thing we're going to talk about is that God uses this book, what Stephen just read, to show us where we actually live. And again, it's not as straightforward as him just saying, hey, this is where you live. This is the address. Because there's some resistance in us, we really don't want to come to grips with where we actually live. Um, Look, the break was long. I don't know if you got bored enough to where you watched Don't Look Up, that new Leonardo DiCaprio, a Jennifer Lawrence movie that's been on Netflix. It's the story of these two kind of low-level, no-name astronomers who happen to discover a new comet. And they're all amazed and everything else, and then they start kind of looking closer at this comet, and they find out this is a really big comet. It's like five miles wide, And uh, it's hurling towards Earth. Do all the calculations. They redo them. They're certain this thing is coming right for us. And it's going to make impact in six months. And so, you know, beginning of the movie is them kind of calling all these folks in D.C. trying to get meetings with the military, with the president, with the media to get the word out. Six months to try to find a solution to to blow up or redirect this planet-killing comet that's headed our way. The problem is that nobody really has time or interest in what they're talking about. So the president's trying to get reelected. The midterms are coming up. The media's trying to boost ratings, so they just want celebrities on to kind of like make people feel good. Even their own families just don't want to hear it. It's a kind of Debbie Downer news. Like, who wants to hear about the end of the world? And there's no solution. Nobody in the movie wanted to face the fact that where they lived was actually a planet that was in the bullseye of a planet-killing comet. Thus the title, Don't Look Up. Keep your head down and just enjoy this stuff. Let's forget about that. So these two astronomers, basically the rest of the movie is just them pulling out all the stops to try to wake people up so that they would look up and face reality and adjust course to do something about it. And I think it would be fair to say that uh, this book is a particularly powerful way that God is going to say to us, look up. You're going to feel resistance in your heart. I don't want to look up. I want to keep my head down. I don't want to think about some of these things. Some of you are going to hear things in here that challenge your view of God. I didn't think God talked like this or said this kind of stuff. I didn't know there was a verse in the Bible that said, I hate life. 
I didn't know there was stuff in the Bible that says everything is meaningless or vaporous. What's the point? Some of you have never thought about yourselves this way, and God's going to ask you to look at yourself really carefully. Let me ask you this. You know, in the movie, there was a big disconnect between the world that all the people wished that they lived in and the world that they actually lived in. They wished they lived in a world where there were no, no worries, no fears, just go, everyone do your own thing, be happy. They actually lived in a world that was under grave threat. Isn't there a disconnect between the world you wish you lived in and the world you actually live in? Isn't there a big gap between the life you actually have the thoughts and the desires and the struggles and the realities that you actually have versus the life you wish you had, that gap is what Ecclesiastes is written to fill. That big old gap, that confusing gap that all of us feel. So how is God going to do this? How is it going to happen uh, in this book to get to lift our chins that, uh, that we would look up? Well, he's going to do it through this teacher that we meet in verse 1. This gritty, seemingly cranky teacher who has some rough stuff to say to us. This son of David, a king in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to bog down in authorship of who wrote this book. Um, there's, a, there's some debate among people who believe the Bible to be the word of God. There's debate. Is this actually Solomon, the literal son of David, or is this another king of Israel? All the kings of Israel after David were called the son of David. Jesus was called the son of David. Is it him? Is it someone else? We don't know for sure, but we don't have to because this either came from Solomon or it came from one like Solomon who speaks with authority about these issues but the question is, can we trust this person? Are you supposed to just take my word for it? Like, it's in the Bible, so I guess this preacher's just going to move on and we just got to take it. Well, let's look at the passage. It's syllabus week and you're trying to get a vibe for all your teachers and professors to see what they're going to be like. So let's get a vibe for what this teacher's like and see. Can I keep listening? Or do I want to transfer out of this class because I don't really care to hear what he has to say? Are you going to listen to him as he tells you where you live, how you to live, and who to live for? Um, the reason I'm making a point of this is when you hear the kind of stuff he says and is going to say, there's going to come a week. If it's not tonight, you're going to want to tune out. We've got to establish trust. So who is he? Is he a grumpy old man? Is he a cranky, cynical, sarcastic, you know, jaded person who's seen it all and is just kind of like, well, you don't know what the real world's really like? Well, let's look. This is the kind of stuff he says. Then we'll look at his credentials. Verse 3. And this is my street-level translation, okay? So you can argue with me later if you want, but I'm pretty sure this is what the meaning of a lot of these verses on the front of your page gets at. He says, so we work 60-hour weeks for 40 years, and then we retire and live in a nursing home. And what do we have to show for it all? Verse 5, he says, generations come and they go. The sun rises and it hurries to set and it hurries right back over to do it all over again tomorrow. He's like, every day is Groundhog Day. Just punching the clock. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. The eye never has enough seeing. In other words, you can never get enough TikToks. You're still going to want more. The algorithm's going to have an infinite supply waiting on you to distract you. For what end? For what benefit? Verse 9 and 10, history's repeating itself, isn't it? 
Nothing's really new. It's just old stuff packaged up in shinier packaging or branding. And if I could, maybe he would say, do you really think if the iPhone 14 has four cameras or 12 cameras or 30 cameras, it's going to make you that much happier? Isn't it just the same old thing with the same promise that's going to leave you just as disappointed with the three cameras on your phone now? He says in verse 11, I hate to break it to y'all. I hate to break it to you, Ben. But do you remember anybody who was sitting in your seats from four or five years ago? Even the most popular person in RUF? He says, you don't because people don't think or care about those things. And he says in love, no one's going to remember you either. This is the ouch stuff. You're like, well, gosh, okay. And then he begins and ends the book. And I skipped ahead to, to chapter 12. That's what's on the back of your page. This is the very beginning and the very end. The thesis is this word translated here as meaningless. We'll get into this in a minute. But he says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So is this the old jaded crank? Or is this some deconstructed post-Christian who now sees he's really thought it out, he's a thinking person, and now he realizes there's nothing to this stuff. So let me tell you naive people who still believe this the way it really is. Is that who this is? It's not. Let's keep looking at the passage. The evidence doesn't allow us to just dismiss him in those ways. Verse 12. He's a seasoned, wise king who knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two. Verse 13, he's thought a lot more about these things than any of us have. Kings have the luxury to invest time in this kind of stuff. So do college students, but not really because they give you too much work and too many classes. But I mean, kings kind of get to sit there and study and have people explore and research and get back to them and he studied these things. He applied his mind diligently to study and explore wisdom in everything that is done under the heavens. And he's honest. Because this is not a guy who's going to play softball with us. This is, this is a wise, seasoned king who's going to tell you the unvarnished truth. He's going to report back to you the sober results of his research and not sugarcoat and not spin and not baby you but tell you what he actually really did find. And he's generous. Because this is a guy who presumably learned some of this through experience. When we get in the weeks ahead, when he talks about sex, when he talks about money, when he talks about um, kids and social status and popularity, you get a really strong sense. He's not, he's not just reporting facts he discovered in a book. This guy lived it. He's got the scars. Verse 12 says he's, he's, he's going to impart wisdom to us, impart knowledge, and so he's up for sharing. You know, I was thinking about it. This guy, I know this is a little bit of an old commercial, but you remember the most interesting man in the world commercials, the Dos Equis? That's who the teacher is. And he's offering to mentor you, to have a relationship with you, and he's saying, you want to go out and get a drink, and I'll tell you the way the world really is? And now that drink's going to unsettle you, and you're not going to sleep that night after you have that conversation, because your eyes are going to be like, you know, pasted back like that, but your mind's going to be racing, and you're going to be reanalyzing everything in a good way. And so what God tears down in the book of Ecclesiastes, he builds back in a, in a better, beautiful way. 
in a much healthier way, in a simpler way, in a more joyful way for, you, for us. So I think we can trust this teacher, and it's okay if it takes you a few weeks for that trust to grow. It's okay to keep listening to him. I just, I really want you to listen and lean in and hear what he has to say. So what does he have to say? Where does he say that you and I live? Where do we live? Um, well, first, well, okay, so he says under the sun. That's a phrase that pops up three or four times here, verse three. We toil under the sun, verse nine. There's nothing new under the sun, verse 14. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. In the weeks ahead, that phrase is gonna keep popping up every single chapter, multiple times. Where do you live? Here it is, under the sun. Help, help, helpful astronomy lesson, thank you, Ben. Let's talk about things we don't already know. What does he mean that we live under the sun? What's that phrase mean? Well, it doesn't mean this, and hear me, because a lot of you Christians in the room are about to dismiss this whole series. He does not mean, under the sun does not mean Godless people who are secular and have abandoned God and are kind of doing life their way like the Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. He's not saying life is, is, is vaporous or frustrating or thwarted or, or futile or chaotic for you know, people who have abandoned God and are going their own way. But if you walk with God, if you pay attention to him, um, everything's going to be great, super meaningful, fruitful, everything's going to make sense, bad stuff's not going to happen to you. It's not what he's saying. Now, an, an aside, to reject your creator and sustainer is a bad idea. It will never go well for you. Um, that's a point that's made in the Bible very clearly. It's just not the point he's making here right now. So if that's not what he means, what does he mean? Um, what he does mean is that under the sun is a condition. It's what life is like for all of us, those who know God as God, as Father, as Savior, as friend, and those who would call God their enemy. In chapter 9 and, and chapter 8, a couple of other places, I'm just, I'm just going to say this and move on. You can turn there if you want to, but how do we know that this under the sun condition applies to everybody? Well, he says in, verse, in chapter 9, he says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you have, all the days of your vaporous, meaningless, frustrating life, that word is there. That life that God has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. In other words, those of you walking with God and walking away from God walk under the sun. And this condition applies to us. Let's take another approach at it. Let's take another chop at this and see if we can bring it down to earth more. Life under the sun is life after we've been evicted from Eden. Life in Eden, for those of you who aren't as familiar with the Bible or the, the origin story of your story, of your life, of humanity, Eden is home. Eden is where you were made for, that you absolutely still remember. It is wired into your emotions, your thoughts, your body. It's why we are so bent out of shape when things don't go the way they're supposed to. Where did you get the idea of the way things were supposed to be? Eden, home, paradise, perfection. Why does every human being have an idea of what perfection means, what injustice means, or immorality means, or error it looks like? 
because you know what Eden is. Ecclesiastes is really putting under the microscope life after we've been evicted. It's life on the run, life on the road. It's life as homeless people. Life post-fall, post-frustration, post-curse. You remember these early chapters where the Bible is really interpreting and telling the story of reality, of, of real history, not some religious story, not some fable, but it's, it's asserting to tell us the story of the world. And it says something terrible happened to this beautiful, brilliant world that God made to live with us in. Genesis 3.17, after Adam and Eve have listened to Satan as a truth-telling father, and started to look at God the Father, the life giver and sustainer, as a murderer and a liar. They eat the fruit that God has told them not to eat, and they prove their allegiance. We prove our allegiance to the devil, and God says this. And to the man, God said, since you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. I want you to hear that. Something has happened to the world you live in. Does it ever feel cursed to you? It is. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. Does it feel like an unreasonable amount of work you have to put in to get in shape or to memorize knowledge or to have a healthy functional relationship? It is. It's toilsome. It's frustrated. It's unimaginably difficult. He goes on, it will grow. The ground that is cursed, that you will struggle to scratch a living from, it will grow thorns and thistles for you. You will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from the dust, and to dust you will return. He's talking about death, which was never something that was supposed to happen to someone made in the image of God. We're never supposed to be dirt people, dust people. We're like God. But in this curse, death comes and we return to the dust. So the created order, the original tension of e intention of everything that God has made has been frustrated. And that's why life is so frustrating. That's why all the time things don't happen the way they're supposed to happen. So Kevin Twitt is a uh, RUF campus minister at Belmont. He was helpful to me in kind of zeroing in on this and seeing this. And he said, Ecclesiastes is really an extrapolation of that chunk of Genesis I just read. If you could take those two verses, the ground is cursed. By the sweat of our brow, we will eat the fruits of the earth. Our relationships will be frustrated. He said, if you could just write a 12-chapter book just about that, to people who are experiencing it in real time, that's what this book is. Marriage doesn't work the way it's supposed to anymore. Male-female relationships don't work the way they were supposed to. Intimacy doesn't work the way it was intended to. Sex doesn't work the way it was meant to. The climate doesn't work the way it was intended to. Weather doesn't work the way it was intended to. Learning doesn't work. Knowledge doesn't work. Brains don't work. Economies don't work. Wisdom doesn't work. Money doesn't work the way that God intended it to work. Do you understand how unique all of this is based on what secular narratives of reality are? 
The assumption in secularism is everything works and it's the Democrats' fault or the Republicans' fault for why it's broken. And if you elect the right person, it'll all be better. Or if you get educated, it'll all be better. Or if you make enough money, it'll all be better. Do you understand that every generation who's ever lived has been saying that? Except we're not in on the joke yet. We are in unprecedented, unique territory in the way the Bible explains the world you live in. This is not the way everybody says the world is. It's the way God says the world is. And it's very, very different. So like the way that you might go to a counselor and explore your distant past, maybe something your mom said to you that just undid you and explains a lot of the reasons you are the way you are today, the teacher God is taking us to our distant past and saying, this is why you are the way you are and the world is the way that the world is. Paul does the same thing. You remember in um, Romans 8 where Paul says, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, it was cursed. This whole realm was put under frustration. He goes on in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. In other words, God's not done. We bear the fruit of our rebellion and our sin, and it's a cursed world. But is God leaving it that way? Paul says, no, this world is bound to decay. Your body is bound or shackled to decay. Law of entropy, everything is disintegrating, not reintegrating, but God, by his grace... And Jesus is recreating and reintegrating and bringing everything back. But I get ahead of myself. Because I want to ask you the question again. I really want to push it into you. Can you, do you have ears to hear what I'm talking about tonight? Or are you saying, I can't, I'm not going to look up. I can't, this, this is bizarre. What is this guy talking about? I will not entertain the possibility that this is in fact the way the world is or the way I am. Can you embrace it? Or are you in denial? Do you think you can micromanage your way back into Eden? Do you think that the iPhone 20 will get you back into Eden? Or when you finally attain whatever enough popularity in this community is this spring, because you've been around a couple of years and this is your semester, do you think that's going to get you back into Eden? The other word that the teacher uses over and over again 38 times uh, is this word, hevel. It's a Hebrew word, hevel. And um, here it says meaningless. Sometimes other places it says uh, vanity. Maybe you have a Bible that says vanity or some other word. But the Hebrew word literally means breath or vapor, like smoke, like fog that's there in the morning and then it's gone before you know it. Life is like fog in the morning. Pleasure is like fog in the morning. Intimacy is like fog in the morning. All these created things, because of the frustration that they've been subjected to, it's like fog in the morning. It's just, it's, try to hug fog. What are you left with? Just you. Looking weird. He's saying this life is fragile and it's fleeting and it's frustrating and it's chaotic and it's nonsensical. It doesn't add up. And frustrated, if you've never really thought about that word, just means not able to get to where you want to be, thwarted, 
What are some examples of this Hevel in everyday life? Hevel. By the way, a little application. If you have a problem maybe cursing or some hyphenated crisis words when something bad happens, say Hevel next time. You stub your toe or your roommate drinks all your drinks from the fridge. Hevel. Let that be what you say because it's a more accurate. Instead of cursing the situation, name it. Here's more Hevel. My seminary professor who'd been working for six years on his PhD, his PhD thesis, he tried to open it one day and it said this file is corrupted. And he said, well, that's okay because I backed it up on my external hard drive. Guess what had been backing up on his external hard drive? Corrupted file. Inaccessible. Took it to all these people. No one could access it. Five years of work and an unattainable PhD now because you can't just say, I promise I had the material. Jeremiah's car, he worked so hard his first year here to get money to buy a car and like, what was it, three months later, in the middle of the night, a lady swerves to hit a deer and totals his car sitting out in front of his house. And then a pandemic happens and inflation happens and used cars are like 10 times more than they used to be and insurance gave him pennies. Hevel. You thought the person you were going to marry, or you thought you were going to marry that guy or that girl, and inexplicably they broke up with you, and their reasons don't make any sense. Hevel. And Hevel describes the major tragedies of life, too. That family of six coming home from Christmas vacation, accomplished doctor, a loving family, and a drunk hits them and kills them, and the drunk walks away without a scratch. Hevel, the best friend that you invested years in getting to know just got married or just graduated. And they still love you and you still get to see them, but you know it's different and you know it's not going to be the same. Hevel, study abroad, you spent three years creating just the perfect spot for it this spring and Omicron scuttles it and there's nowhere else in your schedule to put it in the future. Hevel. Hevel is groaning in exasperation. It's weariness, it's sadness, it's frustration. Do you ever feel it? Does it lift the burden off your back to know that God names that for you and sees it and validates it? It says it's not just that you're grumbly or you have a bad attitude, you're actually experiencing something true. He names it for you. And whether you, relig- you are, uh, well, let me say this. This hevel is compounded by what we already said earlier, that not only do we live in a frustrated, created order, not only do we have frustrating lives and live in a frustrated world, but you remember what Eden is like, and that combination is really hard. We have a memory, a hard wiring of what perfection is like. In chapter 3, verse 11 of this book, the writer says, God has put eternity into man's heart. You know what div- divinity is like. You know what eternity is like. There's a hunger for it. We know what that is like. And to experience the antithesis, the opposite of it, isn't that an extra hard thing? It's one thing if you've never had it great and you have it bad. But what if you've had it the best it's ever been and now you have it bad? That's even harder. And all of this leads to an enigmatic 
frustrating life? Well, God is merciful, and the reason why he is showing us and naming these things and saying this is Hevel, this is frustrated and frustrating, this is where you live, is to show us how to live where we live. When you've accepted where you actually live, there's a wisdom and a savvy that you begin to develop in how you live. So I lived in Philly for, for four years. Towards the end, we lived in West Philly. There's a certain way you live in West Philly uh, where, where me and Anna lived our first year of marriage. There's all kinds of stuff you do. There's you know, what you do before it's going to snow one night. You park your car in a certain place so you don't get blocked in by the snow plows. You don't have your phone at you at night when you get off the trolley and are walking back to your house. People will come up and steal it. When you live in Atlanta and you know where you live, you don't get on the perimeter at rush hour. If you're not a rookie in Athens, you know don't ever get on millage, ever, unless it's the summer or Christmas. When you know where you live, you know how to live. When you embrace and hear what we've been talking about, you will develop a savvy and a wisdom of how to live in this life. And for some of you friends, this might be some of you here tonight, it might be your roommate or your friends. The reason that, that you um, are about to chuck Christianity or already have or you're deconstructing is because you've never listened to God tell you what the world is like. You got your expectations from life from you, not him. So you're blaming him for, where are you, Lord? Why is everything going bad? Why is it not happening the way that you said it was? He's like, I never said it was going to happen that way. Are you listening? I said the opposite. I said exactly what you're experiencing. So instead of having his presence and his empathy uh, and his illumination in that moment, you feel like you missed a memo or he missed a memo. Someone's messing it up and you're about to leave because you haven't been listening. When we know where we live, we know how to live. So what would be different in our life if we listened to the teacher? I'm going to be very brief here. Here is how your life would be different if you and I listened to this teacher. How does he tell us to live in this frustrated and frustrating life and world in the midst of all of this stuff? It's a refrain that repeats in almost every chapter, and it goes like this, chapter 2, verse 24. This is an example. I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Or this lovely little jewel in chapter 9, verse 7, and I quote, So go ahead, eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. We don't have time to talk about the other 15 places that this kind of language occurs in Ecclesiastes. He's basically saying, not just how do you get by until God comes back and makes everything new, how do you thrive? How do you shine in a world that's post-Eden, in a world that's evicted from home? He says, you pay attention to how many blessings and gifts and glories God has insisted, stubbornly persist post-fall, post-sin, post-Eden. You call them gifts and you enjoy them as what they are. Kindnesses from his hand. So I think this teacher would have piled in the car with you Monday night and gone downtown to live it up and say, 
stand at the arch with you and just be like, this is amazing. What a gift of God that y'all got to be in this moment where an entire city, rich and poor, men and women, young and old, every ethnicity, every socio, they're all here and we're all celebrated. We're just out-of-body experience. And he would say, he'd just have the biggest smile. He'd say, what a gift. How kind is God that he would give you something like that, a little taste of the new heavens and the new earth with your friends here. But this teacher will also be with you next week when the, when the, the glory already starts to fade and it's like, the transfer portal, recruiting, who's going to the NFL, the steps are going to be back. And it's just like, man, what a buzzkill. Why can't we just enjoy the moment? He's going to say, hey, don't try to make the gifts of God into replacements for God. That's where we're going the rest of the semester. Pleasure, productivity, with sex, with money, these gifts of God that our shady little hearts try to make replacements of God. He says, no, 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 no. Don't overinflate them. Let them be what they are. and Enjoy them for what they are. And fear God. Here's where we end, friends. How do you enjoy a gift when you don't even know it's a gift? He says the key, the secret to enjoyment is seeing and receiving and participating in these things in real time as the gifts that they are. How do you know, how do you enjoy something when you don't even know it's a gift? G.K. Chesterton said, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. Who do you have to thank? Teacher says this living God who didn't just reveal himself in one book, but 66 books throughout generations. And didn't just reveal himself and introduce himself to you as some generic idea about a deity, but revealed himself continually through the centuries with more and more clarity until the point eventually that he revealed himself or he showed up Jesus the Son shows up in our flesh, in heaven, in this frustrated existence. And he bears the burden for a fall he did nothing to contribute to. And he tastes a dose of our medicine of what meaninglessness feels like and chaos and nonsense and frustration. And he lives his life in such a way and he dies in such a way that he brings meaning back into this and he brings life back into this and he actually brings the key to recreation. The door to Eden begins to open back up in this person, Jesus. When the teacher says, fear God, this is the end of the matter, here's my final word, listen. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. He's not saying be a deist. He's saying fear this God of the Bible who kept talking after Ecclesiastes was written. and rose up again in victory over death, utility and frustration and will bring you back into the world you were created for with him as the first fruits of it. Friends, let's pray. Jesus, you are the key to this book. You are the way back to a new earth. You are the way back to a new life. You are the way back to God our maker. 
I pray that you would just intrigue people tonight, your sons, your daughters, those who don't know you, but they're going to know you soon because you're pursuing them. I pray that you would really introduce yourself to us again afresh in this book. Show us what it means not just to fear God in some generic term, but to fear and be impressed with and our jaws to drop in wonder at you, Jesus, you, Father, you, Holy Spirit.